That's marching. He's enduringly strong. He's immortally graceful. He's impurely powerful. He's impartially merciful. He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's a prince of princes. He's a king of kings. And he's a lord of lords. That's my king. All right. Good morning, Hepzibah. It's great to be back with you guys on this Sunday morning. I hope that you've come to worship. And uh, do you see a little bit of why we fell in love with Josh Howard, man? He's, his love for Christ, his love for this community. Uh, we are excited about the things uh, that are coming with our church plant. And I hope that you will help him crush John Wilson. I'm all about that. Not, not crushing John Wilson, but all about the competitive thing. Uh, he and I are going to get along good. Uh, I always tell my family and my friends, if you're not willing to lose every friend you've got over a competition, then you're not playing hard enough. So I hope that you believe that, and uh, then you can be on my team. So we are going to be in the Word this morning in the book of Colossians. And if you will open up there with me this morning, uh, one of the things I hope that we find and that we see in this Bible study together is that what, what Paul is pushing, what Paul is wanting us to understand, what Paul is trying to get us to grasp is that Jesus Christ is supreme. That means that He is above all. It's another way of thinking about His glory. That when we think of Christ, literally all that we could have, all that we could want, all that we could need in this life is found in Him. And when we preach the Word of God, that's why we want to preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified because He is the answer to any question, to any of life's issues that you or I have. It is found in Jesus Christ. I read a story years ago about a couple that came from America, and they were visiting over in London. And back in the day, listen, London, where it's kind of a, uh, uh, kind of a wasteland right now of churches, uh, they really need a gospel move there like we need one here in America. But back in that day, there were some really great preachers in London, and God was doing a great work in and through that city. And as they were visiting London, a couple went to hear one of the pastors named Joseph Parker preach in the morning. And as they left those morning services, the wife looked at the husband, or I'm sorry, the husband looked at the wife, and his comment to her was, what a great preacher. Later on that evening, they went to another church, and they went to hear Charles Spurgeon. And as they were leaving, the husband asked the wife, what did you think of that? And she didn't say, what a great preacher. She said, what a great Savior. Folks, that's what we aim at. We don't want you to leave here saying, what a great sermon, what a great Sunday school class, what a great ministry, what a great anything, except that you would leave and that you would say, what a great Savior. And the book of Colossians was written to that end so that the church in Colossae would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if they had Christ, they're not lacking in anything. And as we finished last week, uh, I really could have taken 1 through 14 as one section because really it is one section where Paul is talking about the reason why he is praying for the church at Colossae. And last week he said that he was thankful for them. And the reason that he was thankful for them in verses 1 through 8 was he said, I see 
this life of fruitfulness that you are living because you're living a life, he said, of faith, a life of hope, and a life of love. He said, as I look at you, I see a deep faith where it's more than just words or more than just uh, this idea that God is, but you're living your life in obedience to him, faith and works together. And he said, my goodness, I look at the love that you share with each other. And the love that you have, and obviously Jesus was the one who said that they'll know that we're his disciples and the way that we love each other. And he said the love of Christ is evident in you and you have this great hope that is bearing fruit. The gospel is going forth from your church and lives are being changed there and around the world. And today we get into the second section where he's going to continue to talk about this issue of how he's praying for the church at Colossae. And the reason he's praying this time, if you look in verse 9, that's where we're going to begin today. He says, For this reason also, Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, For this reason also, since the day that we heard of it, heard of what? The day that we heard of his faith. He says that ever since I heard of your faith and your hope and your love and I've heard of the great things God's doing, he says, I have been praying continually for you. Now, folks, the greatest gift, I want you to hear me, that we can give to each other is prayer. I don't want you to miss the power of that. I don't want you to take prayer and minimize it and say, you know, our family really needs this and our family really needs that and my friends really need this and they really... No, what they need is a prayer warrior on their side. And the things that we should be praying about for each other, sometimes I think we, we really miss what the New Testament pattern is for prayer because he says, since I heard of the great things God's doing, I've not ceased praying for you. And if you notice, he doesn't go on a list here in a minute for physical things. Most of our prayers are wrapped up in the physical life that we have. We're praying about money. We're praying about upcoming surgeries. We're praying about injuries. We're praying about these things going on in the lives of loved ones. And I'm not saying that it's not important that we pray and lift up those things, but the reality is that is not the most important aspect of prayer in a believer's life. Really, when you look at the New Testament scriptures, what you find is much less prayer about the physical and that most of the prayers, especially what we call the prayers of Paul to the churches, they are spiritual prayers about the life and the growth of those believers. And so today as we look at this, I want you to see the heart of Paul. And I want you to see, is this the heart that you have? That when you pray for your wife, your husband, when you pray for your children, when you pray for your pastor, your connect group leaders, the person sitting in the pew beside you, even those that are lost, could you pray these things that this might be what is in the life of people? Because you're going to hear a phrase in here that becomes very important in this book. That we live this life to please him? That's a big question. How do I please God? How do I live in such a way that I bring honor and glory to his name? That's the crux of what we're going to see and what Paul is going to pray for this church. So this morning, there's three desires that I want us to talk about. And the reason I put these in, in, in the order of, of being desires rather than prayers that Paul prayed, because these are prayers from Paul, but this ought to be the desire we have for ourselves and the desire that we have for others whom we love and we want to walk faithfully with Christ. This ought to be the desire. I believe this is the desire for Paul's own life 
and the life of those that he loved. Now, remember, he had never met this church. He had never met most of these people. He knew their pastor, and that is about it. He didn't probably know anyone else in this church, but yet you see, I am praying continually, unceasingly for you about these things. So number one, I want us to see this morning the desire to know God's will. Now, this can be confusing for believers. Because again, like we talk about when we think about praying, when we think about the will of God, he says here that I pray that you might be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Now, hear that again. I pray that you might be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Most of us, we think that God's will really is kind of what our will is. We would never say that, but it's how we live. Have you ever noticed that more times than not, we spend our prayers trying to get God to do what we want God to do. Rarely do we ask ourselves, what does God want? And what is God asking? Normally, we have all these prayers and we throw them out to God. And the reality is, it's almost as if we're asking God to change when in reality, what we should be praying and what prayer is meant to do, it's meant not to change God because let me tell you, He's unchangeable. It's meant to change us. And so he says, what I want for this church more than anything, and what I'm praying for them, is that they be filled. Now let's look at the word filled. This idea of being filled is a New Testament concept that that we have to understand. If you're filled with anger, it means that you're controlled by that anger, right? If you're filled with rage, that means that if you were a cup, you are filled to the brim with this thing, and now this thing has control of you. You no longer are master. It has mastered you. And in the New Testament, we come up on verses like in Ephesians chapter 5, where the Word of God says things like, be ye not drunk with wine. And so we stop right there. We make the whole thing about drinking. And that's not really what the focus of the text is. It's using it as an example. It's saying... Don't be drunk with wine because when a man is drunk with wine, guess what? He's under the control of that thing. And he said, rather than being under control of something like alcohol, he says, let your life be filled or controlled with the Holy Spirit of God. If you can imagine with me what it's like to have a ship, you could raise the sails on a ship, but that ship isn't going anywhere until what? Until the wind fills the sails. And when the wind fills the sails, now that ship can be directed. Now that ship has power. And that's what we're talking about when we say that God wants us to be filled, controlled, directed, empowered by what? By the knowledge of God's will. See, most of us don't realize that God's will is meant to take us somewhere. A direction, a choice. And so we have to surrender to our own will, our own desires. He doesn't say, be filled with thoughts, be filled with plans, be filled with ideas, be filled with your own will. What does he say? I want you to be filled, controlled by the knowledge of God's will. I want you to know today that you can know God's will. Most of us, when we think about God's will, we think of it in terms like this. God, where do I go to college? God, I think Susie's kind of hot, and you know what? I'd like Susie to notice me. And God, maybe if you could work it out, me and Susie could be a thing, right? That's how we normally think about praying for God's will. 
is we have something that we want and we're asking God to get in line with those desires and give us those things. That is not at all what Paul is referencing when he talks about God's will. In the Bible consistently, from the Old Testament throughout the New Testament, you see it all over the Psalms, especially Psalms like Psalm 119, where he talks about the Word of God, that if you want to know the will of God, you have to know the Word of God. Now, I want you to hear me again. When he prays for these believers that they might be filled with the whole or filled with the knowledge of the will of God, what we are talking about is that we have to find a way in our lives to be filled with this right here. It's the Spirit of God that speaks to us, it's the Spirit of God that opens our, our eyes to the will of God and to the truths of God. And if we would know God's word and know who he is and who we are supposed to be, you would find that in this word, it never mentions Susie. It never mentions your career. It never mentions your new address or what state you should live in or what job you should. It doesn't mention any of that stuff. But does it not tell us what Susie should be like? Does it not tell us what we should be like? Does it not tell us that if you want to marry Susie one day, this is what marriage is. So before you get into marriage, you might want to know what God is asking of you and expecting of you. So you have a marriage that honors God and a marriage that pleases God and a marriage that bears fruit. If we get in his word, it will tell us who we are supposed to be and how we are supposed to live. And when we get those things figured out and we grow in Christ and in the knowledge of his will, let me tell you something, those other things that we're questioning, he becomes the answer to them. And life becomes a whole lot simpler. People perish because they don't have a vision. I don't mean that to say that, you know what, we have to have a life vision statement. When everybody hears vision, they think a vision statement. I'm always told as a pastor, what's your vision? Well, my vision is this. Well, what's your mission? Well, my mission is this. My mission is the Great Commission. Well, don't you have some catchy this, that, or the other that you're going to put forth to the church so that... that no, no, no. Listen, I'm not going to recreate what God has created. I'm not going to try to add or take away from what God has already said and God has already done when he says that without vision the people perish. What he's saying is that if you don't know God's revelation, if you don't know his will as given to us in his word, then you're going to continue on a path not towards God but away from God. And ultimately a path away from God is going to take you to sin and sin is going to take you where? To death. So get what he means. I'm praying that you would be controlled, filled with the knowledge of God's will in your life. And he adds to it, he says, with all wisdom. I love the way Barclay put it. He said, William Barclay said, the man who is spiritually wise, because he doesn't just say that you should also have this knowledge of God with wisdom or with all wisdom, but he says, with all spiritual wisdom. Wisdom. He said, the man who is spiritually wise is the man who is sensitive to the Spirit of God and whose life is guided by the Spirit. You see, wisdom isn't as much found as it is revealed. God isn't hiding from us. He's not taken His will 
in the knowledge of his will and hidden it somewhere and he's making life difficult because you have to spend all your life trying to unlock the codes and find the secrets and do the numerology. That's how people view the scripture. That's a crazy way to look at scripture. What God has said is I am revealing myself to mankind. What we need for life and godliness, guess what the Bible says? That through the precious promises, which are these words, and the spirit of God, we have all that we need for life and for godliness. Again, this is what Paul is saying. What do the Colossians lack? If they have Christ, they lack nothing. Know and be filled with the knowledge of God, with all spiritual wisdom, the ability to judge correctly, not just have the knowledge, but to judge correctly and follow the best course of action based on that knowledge. If you want to know, how do I have wisdom? How do I find wisdom? All you have to do is go over to the book of James, and it will tell you that if any of you lacks wisdom, what should you do? It says, just ask of God. And if you ask of God with faith, not doubting, but with faith that he will grant it to you, how will he grant it to you? Liberally. Overflowing. That means like a cup that is running over, God wants to give you the wisdom that you need to make the right decisions about your life. And he says not only with all spiritual wisdom, but with all understanding. God wants you to be able to put together the pieces of His Word, and because of His Spirit, we can do just that. But I want you to understand, this is why you have to be a student of the Bible. If you want the pieces of the Bible to come together, then read the Bible for yourself. If you're not reading the Bible, I will say it again like I did last week, you're not growing. If you're not praying about that which you're reading and committing yourself to the things that God is showing you with wisdom and understanding, following His will, then you're not growing. You're just sitting in a church. You're just playing religious games. And then he says, in order to walk worthy, with all wisdom, with all understanding, in order to walk worthy. He gives us God's will and fills us with it so that we might walk worthy. That idea of walking in this time and in this understanding of this culture and context, literally everything they did, most of their day was spent doing what? Just walking. If they wanted water, they had to walk two miles to go get it, right? They'd put a pot on their head, they'd fill it, and they'd come back with it. If they wanted to go to the market, they had to walk to the market. They didn't have cars. They didn't have planes. They didn't have trains. They didn't have all the things that we have. So much of their life, the day-to-day, moment-by-moment of their life was done walking. And literally says everything about every moment of your life, even what seems mundane, all of it, we should be living in a manner worthy of the Lord. So there's no small things in our life. There's no small decisions in our life. Every decision is taking us somewhere, right? It's, it's us choosing a direction. And, and when he uses this terminology, remember, this is a culture where we're, we, they talk in terms of honor and shame. You were expected to bring honor to your family, right? Because when you left the house, you represented your father. You represented your family. You represented God if you were an Israelite. And when you left the house, parents would look at you like I do my own children. I, and sometimes I put it this way, don't embarrass me. 
remember, I want you to live in a manner worthy of Christ and this family. In an honor and shame culture like this, that's the best way to think about what he's saying here. Walk in a way that honors God. Because you have two choices. Either you're walking in a way that honors him, or you're walking in a way that that shames him. This life that you live, it's not your life, it's his life. And when you claim Christ, anything and everything that you do as a believer in Christ is as much a reflection or more of a reflection on him than it is on you. And he says, we need to know his will so that we can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We've got to take his will with wisdom and understanding, and it has to bring forth right conduct. It's meant to change the course and the direction of our life. And you see, here's the thing for most of us. There there are people, and, and man has done great at mastering theology, but we fail at living. Now, let me say that again. There are many of us that master Let me put it another way, if I don't say theology, the study of God. We master the things of the Bible. We know the stories. We we can quote the verses. But what a shame to have a master in theology but fail in living. It's what Josh just prayed for us a moment ago. Lord, don't let us leave here being hearers only, but we should be what? Doers, because if there's no transformation, then I would ask the question, what did we just do here for the last hour? We shouldn't just be able to write and talk about eternal truths, yet be helpless to apply them in the day-to-day life that we live. Secondly, not only the desire to know God's will, but he also had the desire to please the Lord, and that's what he prayed for this church. A desire to please the Lord Jesus. He goes on, and if you look at it in verse 10, he says, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him In all respects, not some respects, not a few respects, but God wants you to live life in a way that you are pleasing to him in all respects. So what is a life that is pleasing to God? What does it look like? Well, we have to start where we did last week, and I want to reiterate it, then I want to say it again because you have to grasp this. In Hebrews chapter 11, this is what God said about this issue of pleasing him. He says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. If we talk about this topic of pleasing God and how do we please God, that has to be the first discussion. And that is the all-encompassing thing that Paul is dealing with in the Colossian life. He's saying if you know what's right and you know what's good and you know what God's will is because you know his word and the spirit of God is moving, it should show itself in right living. Faith is action. You realize that. You say, well, I have faith in God that he exists. Okay, you are only on the same level as the devil at that point. You think the devil doesn't know who God is? He knows better than you. You think he doesn't know what Jesus went through on the cross? He knows better than you. He can answer every Sunday school question out there. He could write a theology paper better than any of us. But there is a difference. He hasn't yielded himself to Jesus Christ as king. He stands in opposition 
to all that God has demanded and all that God has said that we should be. He stands in opposition. He questions God. He sits on God's throne in his mind that he's God. And he determines what's right. He determines what's wrong. I will live my life. I will be who and what I want to be. See, that's where the devil sits. He has a belief in God, but not a belief that saves. Do you have a belief that saves? Do you have a faith? See, here's the other mistake. Faith isn't a slot machine where you have God and you say, God, I'm going to have faith in you about this topic or this thing. I want you to do this. And you pull the handle and you just say, well, by faith, God's going to do what I want him to do. You see how we're back in that position of we're trying to change God? We're trying to dictate to God who God will be and what God will do in and through our lives. And we pull the handle and when it doesn't come up all sevens, we get mad at him. And we say, how dare you? I had faith. We're not talking about the same type of faith. Biblical faith doesn't change God. It changes us. Biblical faith is saying to the Lord, I've heard you. I understand you. I believe you. I will honor you and I will obey you and I will live out what you're asking me to live out. That's why James would go on and say that faith without works is dead. Talk is cheap. Words mean nothing if they're not accompanied by action. We can understand that, right? The same is true of love. Are you going to tell somebody you love them, but then you're going to beat them? Or you love them, and then you're going to keep lying to them? Or you say you love them, but you're not going to be faithful to them? At some point, what are we going to say? That's just all talk. There's no love there. Well, that's the problem in churches today. That there's a lot of people that sit in church pews, and they've been there 30 years, and they claim to have faith, but they have faith that has no action. It doesn't change the way they talk to their spouse. It doesn't change the way they talk to their kids. It doesn't change the way they serve their church. It doesn't change the way they give generously to the people that are around them who are in need. It doesn't change anything about their life. Except one hour on Sunday, they're willing to come and sit in a room. That's not faith. True faith changes us. He says not only a life of faith but a life of fruitfulness. You keep going in the verses, and he says, live in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects. And then he says, bearing fruit in every good work. Fruitfulness pleases God. I mean, how many times did Jesus use it as an example that we're like a vine, right? Or, or He would say that, that we're like a tree that's been planted. And what was the intention of the person who planted the tree? They would bear fruit. It's frustrating to go by a plant, we had, we, one time we had, thankfully it was just one of them, but we bought a fig tree and the stupid thing never bore a single fig. I mean, we watered it, it looked good, it looked healthy, everything was good. But listen, I don't want a fig tree in my yard if it's not going to what? If it's not going to make figs. It pleases God when we are who he made us to be when we bear fruit. And you say, well, what does fruitfulness look like? I could do a whole sermon on this by itself 
for two weeks. Let me try to hit it quickly. Fruitfulness looks like this in the life of a believer. Let me ask you this question. Are you making disciples? Are you sharing your faith? Because if you want to please God, then you have to obey God. And the Bible makes clear over and over that the whole purpose of history was the salvation of men because men fell in the garden. From then the earth went into chaos. Man fell into destruction. And the story of God coming to save humanity. And the last thing Jesus says to us as he is leaving is, I'm going to give you a commission. Go and what? Go and make disciples of all nations. I'm going to go away. You wait for the Holy Spirit because He will empower you and you will be my what? My witnesses. He says, Paul would go on and say that you are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Listen, that's everybody in this room. That's not preachers. That's not missionaries. That is anyone who says, I am a believer in Jesus Christ. And with those kind of verses all over the Bible, with it being clear that we have a God who is seeking and saving those that are lost and we are following him. How do we get to the place where statistically they say 96% of believers in the American church have never shared their faith one time? It may go back to the fact that, again, we don't know his will because we don't know his word. And that, way, that may sound completely foreign what I just said to you, that if you're a Christian, you're an ambassador. If you're a Christian, you're a missionary. If you're a Christian, you have a responsibility to take the gift that's been given to you and to give it to someone else. You will give an account one day standing before God. And I don't want to stand there and say, well, there's one really big thing that you told me to do, and I just didn't do it. And he promises you, if you will have courage and you will boldly go and proclaim the gospel, there's power in the gospel and it will transform lives. It can transform this world. Do you believe me? Do, see, now he says, do you have faith in me? And it's meant to stir us to action. And for many of us, the answer is, not really. I'm going to just not do that. Now, I'll come to church. I'll put money in the play. I'll do, uh, but don't ask me to do any of that other stuff. I'm not a teacher. I'm not a this. I'm not, that's for y'all. No, no, that is not what his word says. Are you bearing fruit? He also talks about fruitfulness in the sense of what he says in Galatians. And again, we can misunderstand this text. We, we think that, you know what, there's fruits of the Spirit, you know, like there's love and there's peace and there's patience and there's joy and there's gentleness and kindness and faithfulness and self-control. We go through it, but we look at those as if we just get to go Christian shopping every day and we look at our day and go, Jesus, I need a little bit of patience, but tonight I'm going to go out and do some things and I don't need a little self-control. So I'm going to leave self-control over here, but give me some patience and maybe I'm going to need some love because I'm going to be hanging out with two friends that get on my nerves, and, but I don't really, I don't, want, I don't want, you know, kindness today. That's not how it works. The Bible says that we've been given the fruit, singular, of the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit, guess how many of those nine things it is? Every single one of them. And so you know what it means to be a believer who is bearing fruit, whose life is pleasing to God? It is that person that looks like Jesus because when he starts and says the fruit of the Spirit is love, well, last time I looked at my Bible, it says that God is what? God is love. So when I love, who am I looking like? 
Yeah, we just saw on the screen a minute ago that he's the prince of what? Peace, that in Christ we have our peace. There's no other source of peace. So if I say that I am in Christ, then that means I also have peace. And some of us are out there arguing and going, well, wait a minute, you can't live life with peace. No, you can. He says he has a peace that's not like the world's peace. The world's peace says it's the absence of conflict. If everything is good in life, then I will have peace. But Jesus comes along and says, no, 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 no. I want you to remember me sitting on the boat. They're all freaking out because there's a storm. And what is Jesus doing? He's asleep. He's at peace because he trusts his life to God. And he knows that all he has to do is stand up and say, peace, be still. And it will stop. God can stop the storms whenever he wants to stop the storms. He's not frantic. He's not wringing his hands. And he's looking at us and saying, I want to give you that type of peace. I want to give you a joy that goes beyond your circumstances so that you can never be robbed of it. Believer, he can give you self-control. If any believer says, well, I just can't stop, they are lacking faith in the God who says, I came and I died for you, not only to forgive you of your sin and break the penalty of sin, but I came to break the power of sin in your life too. And if you are in Christ, you are free. If you are in Christ, you're not a slave to sin, the Bible says. You're a slave to righteousness. You have a new master. He's changed your heart. He's changed your attitude. He's changed your literal soul, your affections, everything, so that you can live a life of holiness. You'll never live a life of holiness until you begin to believe, I can because of Christ. We'd rather spend our life going, well, God, you'll forgive me, so I'm just going to keep living this way because I can't change. That is not the power of the gospel. Fruitfulness. He says, without fruitfulness, that's what pleases God. We start to look more and more like Jesus. And then he says it's also a life of fellowship, a life of faith, a life of fruitfulness, and a life of fellowship is how we please God. I love how it just puts it. It says, fruit in every good work, and at the end of 10, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Let me tell you what that means. That means that more and more, day by day, moment by moment, you just grow in the deep personal relationship that you're meant to have with God. Folks, that, that relationship is a beautiful invitation. Abide in me and what? I will abide in you. The abiding with Jesus, he's asking you to enter into a loving relationship with him. Moment by moment, day by day, your relationship with God is meant to be intimate. It's meant to be built on time. Meaning that you set aside time. Imagine if I told you that I'm married and I, you said, what's my wife's name? And I was like, uh, what's her name? Um, Melanie. Would you spend a lot of time with Melanie? Nope, never see her. When's the last time y'all went to dinner? I don't know. Sometimes she comes down and cooks it for me. Other than that, I'm good. I don't need to see her. I don't need to talk to her. You know, I, I can take it a week, two weeks at a time, and that's all I really need. Listen, what kind of, would any of you believe that I have a strong marriage? A marriage that God intends, yet that's how most of us deal with him on a day-to-day -day basis. We put Jesus in the back corner of the back room in the house. And we go on about our lives most weeks and we never even think about them. And if trouble happens, then we start rummaging around to figure out where did Jesus go? 
when what he wants from us is intimacy. Moment by moment, day by day, getting in his word and letting him speak to us, praying, responding to him, singing songs, not just on Sunday mornings, but wherever we are, listening to music that edifies and builds up, serving Christ in ministry, doing the things that he's asked us to do, knowing that as we're out in the mission field, one of the greatest promises of scripture is he says that if you go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded, lo, I'm with you when? Always. You get on that mission field, I guarantee you, you'll feel his closeness in his presence. Get out there with your neighbors. Get out there and share the gospel and do what he's asked you to do. And you will begin to feel and sense his spirit in a deep, personal way that you probably haven't when you're not. Do you really know Jesus or do you know about Jesus? I could sit here and tell you all I know Bob Hope. You say, well, like, friends? Well, I don't know. I mean, what do you define as friends? One day I was working at Cypress Gardens. They called me and said, we got a tour for you to do. And I said, great, who is it? They said, there's a helicopter landing. It's one of the top Bush guys because we were owned by Anheuser-Busch at that point. And Bob Hope is with him, and they want you to do a tour. Now, after I got over being totally nervous and feeling like I was going to throw up, I went out there and I got to meet him and we talked and he asked me a little bit about my family and we gave a tour and it was about two hours and he told stories. He was mainly talking to Mr. Bush more than me. But at the end of the day, he said, it's good to meet you, Aaron. And he got back on a helicopter and he left again. I could walk around the rest of my life telling people I know Bob Hope. But you know what the reality is? Are we good friends? Does he know anything about me? Do I really know anything about him? There's no real relationship. There's no real fellowship that's there. He's never called me once. It's weird. (laughs) Jesus is more than that. He's closer than a brother. He dwells inside of us, and he wants a continual relationship with us and you can know him. And the last desire that we should have, a desire to know his will, a desire to please the Lord, but a desire to be strengthened because the reality is if we're going to live the life that Christ has called us to live, he's going to have to empower us to do it. And isn't it good to know that he has done that? If God calls you, he equips you. When God wants to do a work in you, he's the one that's faithful to complete it. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't save us and say, well, listen, I want you to be like me. So starting today, I saved you. I'm going to be over there. Good luck getting from here to here. Is that what he did? No. How much of salvation is God's? All of it. The justifying you from your sins the moment you were saved All of the sanctification that will take place over the rest of your life, if it's not a work of God, then it has no chance of having any eternal impact. You can't change any more than you can save yourself. But God wants to work in you and to give you strength. I want you to remember that the same thing is true of us that was true of the early church. You remember when Jesus left, he said, I want you to go to Jerusalem and I don't want you to do anything. Until what? Until the Holy Spirit of God comes upon you. 
Because when the Holy Spirit of God comes upon you, then you will have power. A little power? No, dunamis. Dynamite in English. You need God's power because you can't break the chains of your sin without some dynamite. You can't break apart that heart that is hardened and cold and bitter towards God. You need some dynamite. But I can assure you of this, that if you have the power of God, you can live the life that God has for you to live. There's no addiction that God's power cannot break. There is no sin that God's power cannot defeat. There's no task to which He has called you except that He can empower you to fulfill it. There's no fruit that you've been asked to bear that He cannot produce in you. There's no rebellious child, no prodigal son that God's power cannot restore and bring back to Himself. There's no broken marriage that His power cannot reconcile. There's no physical disease that His power cannot heal if He desires. He said, we, church, are strengthened with all power. And I love this second part because this is what you need to hear. It doesn't say according to your might. What does it say? According to His glorious, magnificent might. The power that raised Jesus from the dead now resides in us as believers. Let that sink in. He says, I want you to realize that you can receive power, but then he also says, I want them to realize steadfastness and patience. It's interesting because in the English, we look at those words almost like they're the same. But in the Greek, they're different. Steadfast, we say long-suffering or, or patience. Long, we just think it's all the same words. But in the Greek, it's not. And why would he put two words on top of themselves like that if they were the exact same meaning? There is a difference. There is a nuance in these words. Because when he talks about steadfastness, What he's saying is that God has empowered us to endure every circumstance that we face. That's steadfast. That means whatever you face in life, whatever thing you are up against, whatever circumstance has come against you, whatever it is, God says, I have given you power so that you might be steadfast so this doesn't have to destroy you, it doesn't have to deter you, It doesn't have to detour you. You have victory through my power so that nothing you face can stop you. And he stops there and he uses another word and he says, and not only the steadfastness, but he says, I'm going to give you some patience. Why do we need patience? Everybody turn to your right or your left. That's why you need patience. Because half of our issue in life is circumstances and things that are kind of out of our control, right? Things that happen to us. But the other half of the issue in life that we face that makes life difficult is us. And he says, for the people around you, I'm going to give you the ability to be patient. See, most of us look at the circumstances in our relationships with people as a reason to no longer persevere. You know what? I'm through. You know what? I'm done. They've done this. It's too much. They've gone too far. They've said too much. I can't let it go. And what God is saying to us is, you know what? 
Don't live life that way. Don't let circumstances and people in your life rob you of joy, rob you of obeying God, of honoring God and glorifying God. You're going to need steadfastness, but you're also going to need patience because God is going to put people in your life that they're going to seem like to you that they are an enemy, but nothing changes for you. They won't deter you from faithfully living out your faith. They may treat you with disdain. You treat them with respect. They may slap you on the cheek. Jesus says what? Turn the other cheek. They may be a person that you know they've taken stuff from you and borrowed and said, I'm going to give it back, but they never do. What does Jesus tell you? Then you know what? It's not an issue. Let it go. And if they ask for something else, give that to them too. You see how we want to let their life and their choices and their actions deter us from the thing that God calls us to do? And that's why God looks at us as believers and says, listen, even if you consider them your enemy, I want you to love them. And before you get all mad and self-righteous and say, you can't ask that, you better be glad Jesus did that for us. When he found us, guess what we were? We were sinners. We were lost. The Bible says we were his enemies. And he, in love towards us, offered himself as a sacrifice, forgave us of our sins, invited us into eternal life, and now he gives us the opportunity to be sons and daughters. Jesus ain't asking you to do anything. He hadn't done himself. And you say, well, I'm not Jesus. Okay, now we're back to where we started. He says you can be. You can look like me, he says. You can act like me. You can talk like me. You can bless like me. Have you missed the fact that from the moment he saved you, you know what he's actually been doing? He's been putting back the glory in you that was lost when you sinned. Meaning that we were made in the image and likeness of who? And that was shattered, and that became broken, and we became a mess. And then Jesus saved us, and guess what he started doing? He started putting the mess back together so that we would look like who? A better version of you? Is that what salvation is? Did he save us? Did he die so that we would just become a better version of ourselves? Or does the Bible say that we died and that now the life we live is Christ living through us? It's a big difference. It's a big difference. They will receive power. They will realize steadfastness and patience. But I love this part. They will remain joyfully thankful. They try to debate where does the joyfully go? Does it on the end of the other things that we've talked about that he gives us patience and he gives us steadfastness and he gives us power and he gives us joy? I really believe the structure fits where really what he's saying is the, the joy goes with the thankful. That we're joyfully thankful that we sit before God 
And we recognize that, you know what, because of him, we can be strengthened. And because we've been strengthened, we can overcome. And because we can overcome, now we sit as believers and we can live in this life through the circumstances, with the difficult people, and we can still be joyfully thankful. And he gives us reasons why. Folks, our life is not supposed to look like some grim struggle. It's meant to be a sunny-hearted attitude towards life. And I'm not saying fake. Is that the life that you have in Christ? That you literally can look and say, you know what? By faith, what I believe is this life is not my home. If I lose everything here, it doesn't matter why. Because that's just 70 years. i got a billion coming, and I know what he's promised me there. And if he asked me to lose it here, then I'll gladly do it for his sake. Can you live like that? Can you love like that? He says, if you will, then it'll change your disposition. A joy that's in any circumstance. Because it's easy to be joyful when things go well. Lost people can do that. People that have never met Jesus can be joyful when life's good. But the Christian radiance is something that all the shadows of life can never quench. And he gives us some reasons why. He says, I want you to remember who you are in Christ. And he says, you've been transferred. That word transferred is both Old Testament, New Testament, the understanding. They would have understood it as If you remember when the children of Israel were exiled, remember the Assyrians came in and they conquered their cities. And they took all of the people and what did they do with them? The ones that weren't killed, they carried them away, right? And they said, you don't have a king anymore. I'm your king. And now I'm going to put you into my culture, into my city. And you're going to become one of my people. That's what that word transferred men. It happened to the northern kingdom. It happened to the southern kingdom. It was happening all over the world with all these world powers coming in and conquering the lands. It was when you were taken and you were transferred into something completely different. And he says there's four things that you've been transferred to. That when Christ has become your king, when you have yielded yourself to him, he says, let me tell you what you've gained. Let me tell you what I have given you when I became your king. He said, giving thanks, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. So as a believer, as a saint of God, you say, I'm a sinner. He makes you a saint. You say, I know my sins. He does too. He died for them on the cross. If he has forgiven you, you are free. And he says, you now have the inheritance of the saints. He says, you've been transferred from darkness to light. You don't have to live life no longer or any longer not knowing how to live, what to do, what pleases God, what honors God. You don't have to try to figure out anymore what is a life of honor, what's a life of dignity, what is a life of of, of valor, what is a life that is holy. God has revealed it. God has shown it. And God has given you what you need to live it. And aren't you glad that we don't have to live in darkness anymore? We have His light. 
He didn't come to leave you in darkness. He came to bring light. And when you have light, what happens to darkness? It leaves. You can know God's will. You can be changed. You can live in a relationship with Him because He's not in the shadows. He is light. And all the shadows of doubt and all the darkness of ignorance, they have gone away when Jesus came. But He also says we've been transferred from slavery to freedom. Without God, let me make this clear, men are slaves to fear. Without Christ, men are slaves to sin. Without Christ, they're slaves to their own helplessness. But in Christ, we're free. Folks, it's what the Bible means when it says that you have been rescued. Aren't you glad for that? You've been rescued. You've been redeemed. It's that, that, you know what redemption is. It's the slave market. That's what they pictured. That's what they had in view, was that when a person was redeemed, you went into that market and you paid a high price to purchase that slave only to do what? To set them free. And that's what Jesus did for us. That life you live that you're embarrassed of, those closets that you wish you'd never walked into, those things that you've done, all of it can be forgiven. All of it can be washed away. All of it. Understand, you have been redeemed and purchased, and you've been set free, and the person that you were doesn't have to be the person that you are anymore because of Him. He says you've been transferred from condemnation to forgiveness. You're no longer condemned, it says. But you're forgiven. How forgiven are you? Listen, when the Bible says that your sins are as far as east is from west, never to be remembered again. I like Discovery Channel, and I've watched almost all the shows they've ever made about the Titanic. It's interesting to me. The story of the Titanic and what happened and for years, it was funny growing up, they just kept saying that, you know, they could tell you what happened to the Titanic, but they almost had no hope of ever getting to the bottom. It sunk in such a deep place, they knew that man would never be able to dive down there. And until they developed technology with these submarines that allowed them now to go down there, and now we get pictures, and now they're able to bring back up artifacts. And I always thought to myself, you know, thank God. Our sin isn't that way because I remember God saying to me, you know what, it's east is from west. It is gone. It is not to be remembered. But don't you always have that little part of you that you won't even let it go? And you keep thinking it's going to be dredged up and it's going to be held against me. And could God really love? Could God really forgive? I want you to know that your sin is buried so deep in Christ. It is forgiven and it will not be remembered if you trust him. You can walk in new life. You can claim exactly who Christ says you are, that you are a saint regardless of where you were before you met him. And we've been transferred from the power of Satan to the power of God.
as the musicians come this morning, I want you to meditate on what we've talked about today a little bit. Not Far East meditation where I'm asking you to empty yourself and hopefully you'll be full. I'm saying I hope that you're full. That you're full of hope and you're full of promise and that you leave this place saying, what a Savior, look at what He's done for us. Look at who He is and sit there for a moment and let it sink into your hearts all the promises that God has given. And this wonderful prayer is a prayer that can be reality for us. Because if we're not careful... We'll make a mistake. Like there was a gentleman who says that every day he would sit out on the street and he would sell bagels. And the bagels were 50 cents. And so every day people got used to him being there and they would come up and they would grab a bagel and they would drop 50 cents into the container that he had on the ground. And one day the man noticed that there was a runner, a jogger that would come by. And every day he would drop 50 cents in the bucket, but he never would grab a bagel. And for years this went on. And finally, one day, the owner of the shop stopped the man, and before the owner could say anything, the man said, hey, man, listen, listen, listen. I know what you're thinking. Why do I run by here every single day? And why do I give you 50 cents but never buy a bagel? And before he could say anything else, the owner stopped him and said, listen, man, I don't care about all that. I just want you to know that the price went from 50 cents to 60 cents. You see, sometimes we don't realize how ungrateful we are to God, what He's given to us for free. And we want more than His will. We want more than His plans for us. We want more of ourselves, and sometimes even less of Him And I'm begging you today. Realize that if you have Christ, you have it all. There's not a thing you need. If you'll trust and believe that. He will get you through every circumstance. And so what I ask you to do today is I ask you to pray. If you don't know Christ, give your life to Christ today. What does that mean? You repent of your sins. You turn away from your sins and you follow Jesus Christ and you ask for forgiveness and you tell him that you're going to live your life for him and you're probably sitting there saying, I don't know how to do that. Good. You're saying, I don't have the power to do that. Good. You don't. I'm not asking you to do it. I'm asking you to let Jesus do it in you. He begins the work and he finishes it. He changes your heart. You don't know how you'll get there. He knows. I can't explain it and I'm all these years into it. I just know he's good for what he says. And if you believe him and follow him, he'll do amazing things. He forgave me and he changed me somehow inside out. And I'm not the same man. He can do that if you'll ask him. But you have to believe that his son came and died for you on the cross. That's why you're forgiven. He took your sins. He died there, dying your death because of your sinfulness. And he was buried on the third day. The Bible says that he rose again and he showed us that he could conquer death and he could conquer the grave and he could conquer sin and it couldn't hold him. And guess what? Those things can't hold us if we'll put our faith in him. And all we have to do is surrender to him. Say, Jesus, you are king. I die, you live. I don't want to be boss anymore. You be boss. 
You take control. You take the steering wheel. Whatever analogy you need, give Christ control and stop fighting him. And if you'll do that today, if you'll pray those things right where you are, he will hear you and he will save you. Do you mean those things? I need to change. Change me. I believe you can. You died for me. You rose again. I will follow you. Can you pray that? then in this moment, do it. And if you pray that prayer, I hope that when we stand and sing that you will come up and you will say, Aaron, I've given my life to Christ. I want to be baptized. I want to be part of this church. For you, church, how, much, how many things could God possibly have spoken to us today? This text is rich. Spend time in prayer about these things that we learned about today. Thank him. Pray these into your life. Pray these into my life. Pray these into your family's life. What a tragedy to leave this place today and not pray. So as they lead, close your eyes and let God do a work in you, church. That's my king. He's enduringly strong. He's immortally graceful. He's impurely powerful. He's impartially merciful. He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's a prince of princes. He's a king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king.